Good morning and welcome to our service. We're happy for those of you that don't regularly attend that you're here this morning. And uh, we're grateful for your presence and hope you choose to come again. And we're glad for those of you that come every every Sunday morning. We're we're really happy you're here too. So uh, you're welcome to come again as well. So today is Father's Day. I'm sure that doesn't come as any shock to anybody. Um, I had been contemplating for the last few weeks what I might share on this morning, and, and then come about Monday, it hit me that it's Father's Day. And so what I was going to share on, I was uh, then had to make the decision, will I continue to think in that direction or will I switch gears? And for for a few hours, I thought about just continuing and and skip the Father's Day sermon because I thought, you know, Sunday school lessons really covering some of these things pretty well. Maybe maybe we don't need a Father's Day sermon. But then I was just afraid that perhaps that would just be too great of a break with tradition. And so I chose not to do that. But you will hear some of the same things that we've heard the last two Sundays regurgitated and rehashed a little today. So um, hopefully you can bear with me as we do that. You know, as I as I thought about it, you know, Again, no news to any of us here, but well-functioning families has been, I think Kenny pointed this out this morning as he was teaching, well-functioning families in our society today is just a rarity. It's, it's hard to come by. And as I sat on my porch and reflected on that a bit um, as I was preparing this, um, you know, my mind kind of mauled over the last 50-plus years as the deterioration of the family has reached almost unbelievable uh, levels and things that at one point we would have thought never would have been possible are now not only possible but applauded and uh, thought of as very in vogue. And, um, you know, it, it kind of started with the free love of the 60s. And then in 1970, um, the governor of California sign into law the first no-fault divorce um, uh, that the United States uh, had ever, 1970. That was two years before I was born. And I'm just curious, does anybody know who the, uh, who the governor of California would have been in 1970? I'm just curious. Kenny. Ronald Reagan. And I, that, I did not know that until I looked it up. And I was curious about that because Ronald Reagan is often a president that is lauded and applauded as a very good politician, made very good political maneuvers as his, as, in his time in office as a president. And I'm not here to dispute that. There was, there was good things happened under his, under his tenure. However, as I reflected upon that, I thought, you know, no matter how good his policies were as a president, this man is responsible for the avalanche of no-fault divorces that swept over the country like a plague in the last in about ten years that followed. And my respect for the man went down. I'll just admit that. No matter how good of policies you may make, the demise in this country can be laid at his feet. I do believe, or at least a good portion of it. Well, we won't belabor the uh, 
the the bad things that that unfortunately have taken place since then. And there's been way too many of them. And we were once again reminded of that this past Monday, I believe it was, when our Supreme Court ruled, made a ruling on a pretty wide expansion of what they call Title VII protections. And I think that is an ominous sign of our times and uh, not one that is going to go well for us in the future, I don't believe. My mind also went to the, um, to the um, unfortunate rioting and so on that we've had in the last three, four weeks here in our country. Um, you're well aware of that if you follow the news at all. And probably even if you don't follow the news, you know something about it. And as I thought about the two men that the interaction between two men that set this was kind of the spark that ignited this unprecedented, unbelievable rioting and carnage in the country, I thought, I wonder what the bios of those two men are. And I thought, you know, I bet it wouldn't be too hard to come up with that, given their... um, their place in history at this point. So I looked it up. What was the bio of um, the ex-cop Derek Chauvin? What was the bio of um, the the poor black man that lost his life, George Floyd? And interestingly enough, their bios weren't that much different. Both of them, their homes were broken at a young age. Their fathers left their mothers, so they were left with that to deal with. And at age two, uh, George was moved by his mother into the uh, projects in Houston, Texas, which I quote, it said something like this where I read the his bio. It said, the place was scarred by violence, drugs, gangs, and poverty. Now, none of us know what that's like, do we? We, we were brought up in, in, in situations other than that for the most part. And I thought of the... Of the um, of the ex-policeman, and uh, I, I, I don't exactly know what the rest of his bio uh, really contains as far as what he experienced growing up, but no doubt it was it was probably pretty similar to the what America, the American boy or girl today um, experience. Um, lots of television, no exposure to. Uh, God and his goodness, no uh, moral teaching to speak of. I'm guessing that's the case. And so when these situations converged, to have what we had and the outrage that followed, let's just back up and let's just imagine for one second what would have happened had George Floyd and Derek Chauvin both had Christian parents. Would the story be any different, do you suppose? I just think we'd have to conclude that it would be. I I think that that would be a safe conclusion to reach. And the carnage, the outrage, the destruction that the world and our country has seen in the last three weeks would not have happened. All for the want of a Christian father. And that's sobering when we think of those things. And then I thought, well, you know, imagine a world where that's the case. Fathers and mothers are Christians. They love their children. They teach their children. They bring their children to church. They instruct their children. And their children grow up to be good, godly men and women, and that process is repeated with their children. 
And you know what I thought? I don't have to imagine that. I know something about that. I'm looking at a group of people that that's the case. Have you ever been thankful for what you have been given? I I, I tell you, I am not thankful enough. I'll tell you that. I just don't understand what could have been and what is. And we with the psalmist can say, our lines have fallen to us in pleasant places, very pleasant places. There's a verse in the Bible, as I consider what I should share on this morning, my mind went all kinds of different places. Lots of men, fathers, we could pull lessons from, different texts we could turn to. But Jesus gave a story one time, and the the story starts out like this. A certain man had two sons. What was the story he commenced to tell after that? A certain man had two sons. It's a very familiar story. Prodigal son. Turn with me to Luke 15. That's the title of my message this morning. A certain man had two sons. We're going to read this account and then make some comments on it. Luke 15, verse 11. And he, Jesus, said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man would give unto him. When he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He arose, came to his father. But when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, ran, fell on his neck, and kissed him. The son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to make merry. And his elder son was in the field. He came and drew nigh to the house and heard music and dancing. And he called out and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come and thy father has killed the fatted calf and because he hath received him safe and sound. He was hungry, it would not go in. I'm sorry. And he was angry, it would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. And as soon as thy 
But as soon as this thy son was come, which has devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. It's not very often we turn to this chapter for a Father's Day sermon or pull lessons from the Father from this particular text, but that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to see if there's a few things we can learn from this Father that um, are attributes that uh, we can uh, aspire to, I guess, as, as fathers. It is a very curious event here that this son would approach his father one day, it seems randomly, and say, I would like if you'd settle your estate, and I'd like to have the portion that falls to me. I did a little research on that, and it seems like while this wasn't necessarily outside the realms of normal for this to happen, it certainly was on the fringes. It was not something that would have taken place every day and didn't take place very often according to the historians that I read. And especially in Jewish culture, it seems like perhaps in the broader culture, this would have perhaps been something that would have been more widely practiced than inside the Jewish culture. But that's a little bit beside the point. We have this, we have this story. Jesus gave this story, and I think he probably used uh, information, uh, illustrations that the audience were uh, accustomed to. So apparently it wasn't outside the realms of of normal, I suppose. So the first lesson I would like to learn from this man is that he was an approachable man. Just the fact that this son was not afraid to broach the subject with his father would seem to me that uh, it would mean that he, his father was approachable. He was comfortable having this conversation with his father. So that leads us to the to the question. Obviously, there was there was a apparently a good relationship between the two. Even though the son turned out to be quite a rogue son, not too many days hence, we're not really we don't understand the passage that the son was necessarily uh, rogue at that point. Necessarily. Um, at that point, he just wanted the living divided. And what made him, did he have in his mind he was going to leave and, and do the riotous living part of it at that point? We're left to guess. Perhaps. Uh, perhaps not. We don't know that. But anyway, it's beside the point. It seems like the, the, the point I'm trying to make is there was a relationship there, it does seem. So what can we as fathers do to build relationships with our children? And these are... These are things that are very broad. These are things that will not only build relationships with children, these these are principles that will build relationships with anyone, okay? So we should take time to um, for interest in our child and their interests. And, and that goes for any relationship. If I go to Warren and I just blab to him what I did all week this week and I don't leave him get a word in edgewise, he will tire of me quickly, all right? And likewise, if he did that to me, I would tire of him quickly. There has to be interest in each other's lives. That principle applies to us as fathers. There has to be interest in what 
our child is interested in. And again, I go back to the story Kenny gave them, the, the, uh, the, the child that drew the picture. And rather than to choose to see the mess, the mother chose to see the picture. And I th- thought that was a good story. We should take time for our children. Um, I, could, I could enlarge on that, I won't. I think the conversations and interactions that we have with our children should be upbuilding and not downputting. Okay, and I mean, these are these are these are just fundamental things that I just remind us of. I know a man that's in; he's about ten years older than me. He's a gentleman that uh, Justin and I work with in our seed business, and we've worked with him for a number of years now. And it's a, it's a it's a larger business, larger dairy, and there's a number of brothers there that run that dairy. And the, the older one is the, is the boss. He's the obvious boss there. But there's one thing that's always intrigued me about this gentleman is he seems so unsure of himself. It's so hard for him to reach a decision. And, and it has always baffled me how this man can run this large dairy, big dairy, and be so unsure of himself and so you know, you just have to hold his hand. You know, it's almost like you have to, like, push him along and, and make his decisions for him. For him to make a decision and be satisfied and confident in that decision is almost impossible without a lot of hand-holding. A mutual friend of his and mine, I was, I was talking with one day, and, and we, we, our conversation went in direction of this particular gentleman, and I said, have you ever got that feeling, you know, about this particular gentleman? He just, he really struggles to make a decision. He said, absolutely. And he said, I know why. I said, well, fill me in. Why is that? He said, when that, when that young man was a child in like his, you know, 10 to 20 in that age bracket that really makes a lot of difference, he said, I heard his father on more than one occasion just publicly berate this young man. Couldn't do anything right. Just publicly just put him down, trash him. He said, the man is scarred for life. He said, if you want to do that man a favor, he said, applaud him where you can. He said, to this day, he needs that. He needs someone to speak kindness and something upbuilding into his life. And I thought, how sad can that be? That a man is literally scarred for life because of his father's Unkind actions. I think that we need to make an attempt to stay connected with our children. We need to learn to communicate with our children. Relationship and communication, uh, those two are pretty much inseparable. Some of us are more, um, are better at communication than others. Uh, that's, that's a given. But I think if we struggle with that, we shouldn't give up on it. We should learn how to communicate and communicate well with our children, cultivate that skill. Another illustration here I, I couldn't help think of is um, a man that I've known for all my life that uh, I knew that he struggled with a relationship with his father all his life. It, it was an obvious thing. And this particular son is now approaching what I would call elderly, 
and his father has passed on some years ago. And I had a chance encounter with him a number of years back, and um, this man opened up to me in ways that I was surprised. And he shared with me that his father would not talk to him. He would ask him a question, and his father would walk away. Just simply wouldn't communicate. And it stayed with them through their adult lives. They, they just simply did not have a relationship. They didn't. It, it, was not an, it was not an uncommon thing for this son to, um, to call his father something other than a dad. That's sad. That's very sad. Let's not be that way. Let's be approachable people, communicative people, people that we, they could talk with their children. Number two, this man apparently in this story, I think it's, we can deduct that he had the respect of his children, of his two sons here. He had the respect. Why do I say that? Well, it kind of builds on the last point. One thing I find interesting is when he, when he went to his father, he didn't call him the old man or some other degrading thing. He said, father. Father, I would like if you would do this. He, he used the term father. Um, again, pardon my stories, but they keep coming. Um, when I worked as a tester, a DHIA tester back in Pennsylvania for seven years, I got into a lot of barns and a lot of relationships. And if you want to see people at their finest, put them with some cows. That will, that's where the real people come out. All right? My children know that too. Anyway, I, I just remember milking with this, this father and, and these two sons. And the father's name was Harvey. And to the two sons, he was Harvey. He was not, it was never dad, it was Harvey. And that seems so odd to me. Really, really odd. And, and I, I, I make no further comment than that, but it just seemed odd to me that, that the title that the father had was Harvey. But he, this man here addressed him, his father, his father. The other thing I find interesting, I, I mentioned already that what he requested of his father was perhaps on the fringes of normal, okay? He could have perhaps found dubious means to get this half of the living without literally just going and asking for it. But he didn't do that. He didn't choose to do that. He, he, he respected his father enough that he just went and he had the conversation. He didn't threaten his father. He just, he just appealed to his father. And I think that's somewhat that we can deduct from that, that he has a level of respect for this, for this, um, for his father. So what are some ways we can receive respect from our children. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school too, didn't we? Um, some of the some of the things that we can perhaps do to find honor, um, ways we can honor and so on. Well, I just have a number of things here that I think we can do that will aid our children in respecting us. One of these verses that I'm going to refer to was in our Sunday school lesson. Fathers don't provoke their children. Be fair, be honest, be present for your children. Be liberal with passing out compliments and making it obvious that your children are appreciated. 
It's just not real hard to respect someone that is that way. I think another one, another thing we, we need to do is to maintain respect. We have to keep a proper tension between being the friend of our children and the father of our children. While we wish to have a relationship, we wish to be our child's friend, we can never relinquish our place of authority in the family unit. I really believe that to do so will cause confusion, resentment, and ultimately disrespect from our children. I couldn't help but think of the biblical example of Lot and his sons, sons-in-law, excuse me. It wasn't his sons there in that particular case, but his sons-in-law. Whenever Lot went to, uh, to his sons-in-law and begged them to leave the city for what he feared would soon happen to the city, it says that he was to those sons-in-law as one that mocked. All right? They had zero respect for that man. Zero. They lost their lives for it, too. And it would be curious to know why they had such little respect for Lot, but um, uh, that's something we can perhaps, uh, you can perhaps think about. This father also, number three, he also gave this son space to find his place in life. Now, I don't believe this father was one bit pleased with the riotous living that this son chose to engage in. I don't think that pleased that father one bit. I don't think he was real happy that he went down into that far country and did what he did. And I wouldn't doubt, just knowing the character of this father as he is portrayed, that perhaps there was a conversation that ensued before that happened. But we have to guess at that. But he did give his son space to grow up and find his place. His son made awfully poor choices, but he, but he gave him that, that space. And I think that's, um, that's something we need to do with our children as well. You know, as they grow up, we need to give them space to be their own men and women. Um, at some point, they become adults, and we need to treat them as such. However, I don't believe, I want to put this as kind of an epitaph to that, I don't believe it's necessarily wrong to engage our adult children in conversations when we see them making choices that are unwise. I'll give you this example. I was listening to a sermon online by by a, a pastor here this past week. He said that whenever he was in his 30s, he was making some decisions that his father felt were, was unwise. And his father came to him and simply said this. He said, I want you to think about one thing. He said, if your children make the same decisions you do when they're 30 as you're making for the same reasons, will you be satisfied with that? And he left it at that. But that caused that man to stop in his tracks and think about what he was doing. And I would like to apply that thing to this honor business that we were talking about in Sunday school. The point was well made that to honor cannot be demanded, it has to be earned. That, that is so true. However, I find it interesting that in the Bible, the Ten Commandments and in the, in the passage we read this morning, it says, honor your father and mother, period. Period. It doesn't say if they're Christians, if they have made wise choices, if they have not offended me in any way, if they have not, you name it. It is not conditional. It says honor them. Now, the reason it says that 
is because I don't care what standard of achievement we reach in our honorableness and in our success in being honorable parents, we will never achieve perfections. We're all going to have these inerrant flaws. We're going to make mistakes just because we're people. It's going to happen. So the reason that is there is because God in his wisdom knew that. And he knew we needed to respect our parents unconditionally, no matter how badly they messed up. Now, that's very, very, very difficult Difficult if they have messed up wildly. I'll, I'll grant you that. But it is not conditional. So I want to I use that, that challenge that that man gave his son and apply it to this. If you're... If your children choose to honor and respect you to the degree that you honor and respect your parents, will you be happy with that? You think about that. Number three, this man in this story maintained boundaries, and it seems that his son knew that he did. i got to read a little bit between the lines here. But why did the son go into the far country to live riotously? Could he have not done that in his father's house? Could he have not engaged in riotous living right there at home? I think there's probably one of two reasons, or maybe both, apply here, that this man went into the far country to live riotously. I wonder if he couldn't bear the presence of godliness as he practiced godlessness. I wonder. And I wonder if he also knew that his father would not aid and abet him in his riotous living. I wonder about that. You know, I'd like to encourage us as dad that there is nothing wrong. In fact, it is altogether right for us to set reasonable boundaries for our families and stick to them. As a matter of fact, I would go so far to say that almost without fail, there will be very undesirable results if we fail to do just that. I'll take Eli in the Bible as a case in point. God held Eli accountable for the awful actions that he, that his sons engaged as, as adults, laying with women at the door of the synagogue, forking out meat that they should never have had, these things that were a, just a damnation, and they engaged in it. And God held Eli's feet to the fire for that. And sometimes it feels just a little bit uh, unfair, but I know God's not unfair, so I'm, I'm going to go that God does see this very, very um, seriously. And it would be interesting to know <clears throat> what the how Eli Eli failed as a young father. Did he? Did he fail when his when his boys were youngsters in appreciating appropriate boundaries? These things we don't do, and here's why we don't. This is why we don't stick our fork into the meat and roast it like we want to. That's why we don't do that. This is why we don't flirt with women. This is why we don't. I don't know. We just, we have, we're left to guess some of those things, but obviously Eli was held accountable. The New Testament has a couple of verses I'm going to refer to. Again, one of these was, uh, was in our Sunday school lesson about fathers not provoking their children to wrath, but bringing them up in the nurture or that we could, we could substitute that word training and admonition of the Lord. 
In 1 Timothy 3, we have the qualifications of a bishop there. And one of those qualifications, and by the way, I don't think this is just a qualification for a bishop. Our churches would be in sore trouble if this was only what the bishop did, right? One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. And that word ruleth means to preside, to take charge, to make necessary and sometimes difficult calls. In other words, to be a bit of a referee, to set some boundaries and stick with them. I think we need to teach our children that maintaining boundaries is the only way we'll ever enjoy true freedom. We have another example in the Bible of a lawless person, or he was pretty pretty wild and unruly anyway, and this man's name was Adonijah, and he was David's son, and he tried to use up the the, um, the throne from, or he tried to take the throne from David before Solomon could get there. And you can read that account in 1 Kings 1. It's an interesting read. But the only reason that the commentator, the story writer gives that Adonijah was the way he was is in verse 6 when it says, At no time did David ever displease this young man by, by asking him, Why have you done so? In other words, he never challenged this young man. He never said no. He never set the man a boundary. I find it interesting, too. <clears throat> that the father in the story here that we have of the prodigal son, whenever the prodigal went down to the, the pig pen there and fed the pigs and obviously ran out of money on his, on his, uh, on his living, his lifestyle choices, the father did not continue to send the son a living. He was there. He had to figure it out for his own. And again, I want to challenge us. Don't be scared, fathers, to set reasonable boundaries for your children. I, in my short lifespan, believe that I can point to grave church issues that could have been avoided had fathers just stepped up to the plate and did what they should have done. You can do your children and your church a big favor if you will choose to do so. Number four. This man was a predictable man. Why do I say that? In verse 17 and 18, as this man sitting by the pig pen, chucking husk to the pigs, he began to think of his father, and he said, my father has servants that have more than enough, and I am confident if I go back to my dad, he will treat me well. He knew this man's character, and he knew that he was predictable. He did not think, it does not appear, that he thought when he went back that it would be a little iffy. Would my dad be the same guy that he was when I left, or wouldn't he be? It seems like he knew what to expect when he came back. I uh, I guess I'll just be honest here that as I age, as I become older, I have more and more and more appreciation for predictability in a lot of areas, but I really appreciate it when I haven't met a person for 20 years and I meet them again, they're the exact same person they were when I saw them 20 years ago. Good, godly people serving the Lord well. And that is such a blessing to me. And it's equally disheartening to me when I meet someone that I haven't met for 20 years and there is an obvious loss. Obviously something went awry in those 20 years. 
unpredictable. If a thing is wrong today, it was wrong yesterday, and it's wrong tomorrow. If it's right today, it was right yesterday, and it's right tomorrow. The principles never, ever change. They never change. I think a real foundation to being predictable is if we can learn the value and the virtue of self-discipline. Being able to discipline ourselves without being told we have to do things. Being able to be people that are visionary enough to see that this thing is not a good thing and here's why, and we're not going to do it. I don't care if everybody else is running headlong toward it. We're not doing it because it does not appear to be a good thing. And be able to stick to that. We don't have to do that brashly, boldly, uh, uncomfortably. We can do that, and we can do it well. We can do it in a godly way. And so I encourage us to, uh, to be people of predictability, virtue, self-control. I would encourage us as fathers to keep the pig pen as far away from our houses as possible. If our children are going to engage in untoward activity and garbage and the like, it's going to be in the pig pen. It's not going to be in father's house. Number five, this man was willing to sacrifice time and put hard work into raising his family. I pulled this principle from the interchange between this father and his elder son. And we read the story. The elder son was not just real pleased with how this was turning out. In fact, he was a little angry about it, and he wasn't going to go into the party. Now, his father had a couple choices he could have made. He could have said, let him just stick. He can get over that. He has a few things he can learn, too. We're partying right now. We got the fatted calf killed. We're enjoying ourselves. That's fine. He can just be out there and soak. It's not what he did. He left his, I call it a party. I don't know what else to call it. He left this rejoicing time. And he went out. And I don't know how much time he spent with his, with his elder son, but he was willing to invest time into this elder son that this elder son needed. He was concerned for the souls of both of his children. <clears throat> So how about us when our children are going through hard times? Are we willing to engage with our children, walk with our children, leave our parties, and maybe even legitimate things so our children know that we can walk with them? I was recently encouraged by a a father that shared this story with me. He had a son that was... um, unbeknownst to him, engaging in social media activity that was not appropriate. And, of course, the father didn't know this, but it was happening. The father found out, and he was not at all happy, as as can be expected. And he uh, he banned his his son from engaging on social media, that particular platform. I'm not sure what, what all the... The ramifications were, but there was, there was, there was some tightening of the boundaries. I can tell you that. And one of the things was that there was a, 
cutting off of some of this interaction, at least one or two platforms, if not all. But what encouraged me was the father, as he did that to his son, he said, son, here's what I'll do. I also will cut myself off. I will not ask any more of you than I will do myself. And that just encouraged me. This man would not have had to do that. He was not engaging in inappropriate activity on his um, sites and so on. But he asked his son to do that, and he said, to tell you how much I care about you, I won't do it either. I'll cut myself off too. You know, being a father is hard, demanding work. There's this little... um, thing we sometimes say to our children or we see or whatever. A job worth doing is worth doing right. And I can tell you what, that applies to being a father too. If, it's, if you're going to be a father, just go ahead and do it right, okay? It, it's, it's well worth it. The last point here I'd like to make, and there's many more we could, but we're just going to stop here. Number six, this man was a man of kindness and compassion. I don't know what you think of when you think of real men. And I even wondered if our society even knows what real men are anymore. But as I was growing up, and those of you that are 30 or older know what I'm referring to when I talk about the Marlboro Man, okay? Hopefully you don't know that because you stuck the cigarettes in your mouth. But the Marlboro cigarette had this iconic man. He was the cowboy, the the rugged cowboy with the rope, and he was just one of these guys that was, was fearless, he was independent, he was hardened, and he was a master of his destiny. That is what they tried to portray. And from 19, about 54 to 99, when you'd see a billboard advertising Marlboro cigarettes, there was the Marlboro man. Why did they pick that man? Why? Well, it portrayed what they were trying, what they wanted to portray, and that was exactly what I just described. A tough old boy. Well, we can be tough old boys, but in, in our, in our being tough old boys, can we, can we be kind and compassionate? Can we tone that down a little? Why do I say this man was kind and compassionate? I find it interesting. He was willing to part with his living to this rogue son. And I wouldn't doubt, I wouldn't doubt his neighbors questioned that wisdom. I don't know. It'd be interesting to know. Um, of course, this is a parable. It didn't actually happen. But at least we can say this. The man was obviously unselfish, okay? And from the, the way the narrative reads, we would come, we would conclude that this man waited long and looked often for his returning son. And when he saw him, he ran, he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. This man was a very compassionate man. And he willingly forgave and restored that son unconditionally, no strings attached. You're done with your pig pen, come on back. This man also was concerned about the eldest son. He didn't just leave him soak, as I mentioned. He went out and he entreated, come in. This is a good time, we should be rejoicing. I get it, you you have served me well. But, you know, we're looking at, you know, can you be unselfish too? It'd be interesting to know what I already told that son. I also find it interesting that as the son was belaboring what he should do as he was getting hungry there in the pig pen, he said, I know my father's servants have food, not only food, but food to spare. 
This man was a sharing, giving, loving man to his bond servants, the way it would, the way it would read. Kindness and compassion are desirable, applaudable characteristics of any man, no matter how wizened or tough he may be. I'd like to conclude this by thanking you fathers here for doing a good job. I want to thank you for that. And if you're here and you have a, a good father, you, you thank God for that. That is a blessing that, again, I will just say I don't think we understand. But I also thought, you know, what if my circumstances are such that aren't desirable? What if by chance my father wasn't the person I wished that he was? Well, we have a couple choices there. I had to think of one man in the Bible that we're, we have, we can say with fair confidence that his father at least wasn't what he could have been. And that was the man Timothy. Uh, Timothy's father we don't know much about, but we know that his mother and his grandmother were good, good Christian women. Timothy, no matter what his father was like, went on to be a stellar pillar in the early church. So the point I'd like to make is this. If we feel jilted for some reason, that we don't have what we wish we could have, that is no reason that you still can't go on to perfection. That is no reason that you have to grow sour in your own juice of bitterness. No reason at all. God's grace is sufficient for you too, and I would like to encourage you in that. So God bless you all as you continue to fill your roles wherever God has called you, father, mother, child, whatever that is. His grace is enough, and we can enjoy his blessings notwithstanding our circumstances.